that doesn't happen too often every few years, but uh, in the western sky soon after sundown when it gets dark enough obviously to see the stars, uh, Venus, Mercury, and uh, Jupiter are going to be in a small triangle there and will be quite bright to be seen. So one of the wonders of God's heavens uh, there to for us to behold. <clears throat> I don't know whether you noticed last evening or not, but it always truly impresses me when the moon starts getting full and comes right over these red cliffs uh, to our east. Uh, it looks so huge when it comes up over there, as it did last night. I don't think the full moon, completely full, is until tonight, but last night it was... Uh, at least not visibly less than a full moon. It is always a joy to see some of the these things that God has created and how they relate to the fact that He truly is there and truly is our Creator and has made a beautiful world for us to live in. I apologize for not being here and speaking as scheduled last week, but I was still overcoming an intestinal bug of some kind, and I was afraid I might still be communicable, uh, at least contagious, so I opted not to come. Uh, I was feeling quite a bit better, but I still wasn't right, Uh, but through the first part of the week I began to feel fine and have been back fully at work for several days, so I think I'm pretty well over it. I hear it's uh, a phenomenon that's occurring all over the country as I talk to people back and forth. I say, well, we've got a lot of flu here in our area, and uh, I guess it is a fairly common bug at this point. Let's go back today again to Second uh, Peter. I originally started this series, uh, as you know, in terms of Passover coming and the Days of Unleavened Bread and the hope that Peter gave us in the sacrifice and certainly the resurrection of Christ. And his first epistle, even though there was some pastoral uh, instruction there and instruction for us as individuals in terms of types of growth and overcoming we need to be involved in, uh, he was stressing that it is the growth, it is the overcoming and the changing that gives us a strong hope. Just as James had said, our faith is also increased by obedience to God, by trusting Him and obeying Him. Uh, That is how our faith grows. So, he continues some of those thoughts here in 2 Peter, and we covered the first chapter last week, or last time I spoke. Uh, And he concluded chapter 1 with the admonition or the instruction or knowledge that the prophecies of the Old Testament did not come from the minds of men, but that God inspired those men with his thoughts, his words, to write down for those who would succeed them in the following generations, and particularly right at the end. And even Peter, as he wrote this this epistle, or letter to the scattered tribes, indicated that these things would be even more so true in the end time. Of course, he thought at that point he was at the end time and Christ would be returning soon. So he wrote in that uh, tense. Uh, Thankfully he did, because now we upon whom the ends of the earth are now coming 
read it as if it is today. And we need to take it that way. Because all the signs that Peter was looking for are extant and with us today. We see the leaves coming on the trees. We see the advent of Satan's world government being very quickly formed and freedoms being removed in this country prior to its complete collapse and fall. So these things are very, very much there for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear and are not glibly going along trying to ignore everything that is happening around them. But Peter also draws it down to the church itself and conditions that would exist within the church at the end. And we need to take careful note of this because what he wrote of was happening in the churches of God as he wrote it. And we are here at the end where, when he says that it will come to pass once again. So the admonition and the warning, the danger that Peter is about to tell us about is very real, and it is happening within the church of God today. So let us be aware of what Peter has to tell us. We probably will get to the book of Jude, because Jude had the exact same concerns that Peter does here in chapter 2. And very uh, pointedly puts it on the wall for us to see. So let's get into chapter 2 here, knowing that the things that were written uh, came from God. Uh, ironically, God inspired certain men to do certain things. And he even has a warning at the beginning of Zechariah, chapter 1, the first six verses or so, where he tells the church today... He's introducing, in chapter 2, the end time, the two witnesses, the gathering of the remnant together, which will occur shortly, just as Haggai indicates. But he said, be very, very careful that you do not do as your fathers did. That is, ignore those whom God sends to give you a message. Be very, very careful of that, is the first thing that God addresses in the book of Zechariah before he begins to give any information as to what is going to happen. And make no, no mistake, what Zechariah wrote was a prophecy for this very time we are in and is echoed in Revelation 11 as an end-time event. So he opens by saying that in the past there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you. So, just as in the past, this will occur again. Now, we have already seen it in a very uh, important way when those came in, worked their way into the church, became teachers by hook or by crook, and then began to teach Protestant doctrine all over again. The stuff that we had come out of, they led the church right back to. And of course, that's addressed in Zechariah 5, where it talks about two unclean birds 
who would take the church back and set it on its base in Babylon, and that that church would be essentially silenced, a weight of lead put over its mouth. And that has happened with Worldwide Church of God. The Dukachas led it back to Babylonian religion, set it up there, and it has been silenced. So that prophecy has come to pass. But those are not the last two who will bring a false message. There would, would be, have been, and will be others. And we need to be aware of that. False teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now, anyone who is going contrary to the teachings or the doctrine or the government of, if you please, the church today, would quickly say, this does not apply to me because I'm not denying the Lord. I'm not denying Christ. Now, we need to understand these scriptures in spiritual content. Obviously, they wouldn't come and deny Christ's name. The Tkachas didn't even do that. They're still teaching Jesus, wherever they may be today. Well, Senior isn't, but his son still is, and those who followed. They're still teaching Jesus and him crucified and resurrected. But they obviously were false teachers, because they led people away from the true doctrines of the Bible and brought in their own ideas. So it is not denial by denying the name of God or of Christ. It is denial of the things that Christ teaches and does and tells us to do. Remember the account of Samuel, who felt rejected because the people were talking against him and so on. And God told Samuel very clearly, it isn't you, Samuel, it's me that they are denying. Jeremiah suffered persecution and lies told about him for 40 years. But it was not Jeremiah that they were rejecting. It was the message from God that was being rejected. So, if they reject some of the teachings, and we'll see which one was the paramount one here shortly, of God and of Christ that actually denies him, because if you deny Christ's word and Christ's message, then you're denying Christ himself. That God makes very clear in many scriptures. I gave you a couple of examples. So, it is possible to deny Christ while you still say you use his name and, who, and say that you worship him. Okay? And we've seen that in our recent history in the church. So let's be aware of that as we go into this, that we don't have to cast back a thousand or two or three or four thousand years to find an example. We've lived an example of that, actually more than that. But it says that in whatever form, then, they are denying Christ, it will bring destruction upon them, ultimately. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. 
So those who enter into this kind of attitude that Peter is addressing will speak evil in some form or another of the way of God or the truths of God or the scriptures of God. He'll draw it down in a much more pointed way a little later, as does Jude. And they speak evil of some of the ways of God. Now, I would not presume from this that those who are in this category would speak evil of all the ways of God, okay? The reason being that if they spoke evil of Christ and of his word, straight across the board, that no one would be deceived by that. <clears throat> so it is only certain elements of God's truth or his way that they will be perturbed about and will deny. Okay? Not categorically deny everything in this book by any means. You see, even Satan's ministers or demons are transformed as angels of light. So they speak things that would appear to be right, and yet there's a subtle wrongness, a subtle fallacy, an untruth involved. That's why we have to be so very careful, because Satan is very subtle. And he will deceive people in ways that don't seem to be deception. So we have to be very cautious and very aware and think clearly and pray diligently to avoid being deceived by those who bring a slightly wrong direction that can lead you way astray. I read recently a statement of beliefs of the church written by the Tkachas in 1998. And most of what they wrote was true and still held to the tenets of the doctrine that we learned under Herbert Armstrong. Yet there were two or three changes and things slightly turned askew so that most of the church would read this and think, well, that's basically what we've always believed, because most of it was. So they started making those changes fairly subtly, some of them. Some, they changed pretty rapidly because it appealed, like makeup, you know, to a lot of women. That isn't something that... Uh, let's say, is one of the primary or building block foundations of God's truth. It is a side issue to some degree. So that one was snapped up pretty quickly. <clears throat> but some things they brought in very subtly. <clears throat> so you have to be careful. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Now your first thought here would be that they have their minds on money, and that they would try to make money off us. Now, that is always a possibility, but that is not the main thrust of what he's trying to say. He's talking about spiritual deceptions here. 
Now, covetousness can cover a lot of things. Covetousness is not all about money at all. He said, don't covet anything in the Ten Commandments that you don't have a right to. Now, let's go back to Satan himself. What was it he coveted? Money? No. He coveted leadership. He coveted power. He coveted taking God's place. In other words, what it boiled down to was he wanted God's power and authority over the universe removed. So he attacked God from the standpoint of authority, from the standpoint of government. And he convinced one-third of the angels, those who would listen to his story, if you will. Those who would listen to what he had to say. Those were the ones he attacked. And he took a third of the angels from being righteous, holy, worshippers of God, to become worshippers of a wrong way, Satan's way. Done very subtly, I'm sure. So... What are those who have certain types of covetousness trying to make merchandise of you? Or should I rephrase that? In what way are they trying to make merchandise of you? In other words, use you for their purposes, whatever those might be. And they can be righteous-sounding purposes. They can be. So these are not true words of God, but they're words that come with a feigned sense of sincerity, that sound good to you in some ways, because they play upon our human nature. We're going to see this boils down to government very quickly, so I guess I'm already there. But they will begin to very gradually and subtly try to discredit those whom God himself has put in charge. We saw this happen with Herbert Armstrong. There were literally books written about his mistakes, his sins, his lack of character, his lack of integrity. I never read those. I did read some stuff on the Internet from Ambassador Report and so on that was going around. And who knows? How much of it might have been true, and how much of it was not true. We have no way of knowing, do we? You know, he never addressed it. He just let it ride. Let it slide. They could say whatever they wanted to say, and he stayed above that, didn't even answer the accusations. They accused him of some of the most despicable things that a human being can do. And he just let it slide. He was busy doing what needed to be done, and he didn't want to waste his time and energy trying to deny all those things that had been said about him. It wouldn't have done any good anyway, you know. It wouldn't have done him any good, because they were writing the books, and they had the attitude, and there was no way that was going to be changed. So why even bother? Just get on with what needs to be done. But they were trying to make hay, if you will, to use a word other than money, 
They were trying to make him look bad, which is contrary to Scripture all the way through. But merchandising you, in that sense, is using you to further their purposes, whether it be monetary or something else, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. So, at some point in the near future, anyone who indulges in these things is going to be caught up short. Their judgment does not sleep. God sees what's going on. Throughout the church. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartaru, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now, all demons are not chained. But some were in the days of Noah, obviously, from what Peter has to say later. Some may still be. I don't know. God is controlling how much influence Satan and the demons can have. And whom he chooses to allow to be free, and whom he punishes or restrains at certain times, uh, is up to him. You may even remember a miracle or two where Christ cast out the demons, and he told them, do not come back here. So he restrained them, or in that sense, chained them from doing what it was they wanted to do. So he says, just like God is able to restrain the demons until their judgment comes, he also will not forget what some men are doing within the church. And he uses another example. God spared not the old world, verse 5, but saved Noah, the eighth, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he cites examples where God took care of the problem. God is not toothless. He is not powerless. And Peter is saying that just as in the past, God will take care of these current situations that we are dealing with today in the churches of God. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example to us that after should live ungodly. So he says the same things that happen in Sodom and Gomorrah are going to come down on those who come in the end time teaching that which is false and wrong. It isn't just what they teach, but the attitude that goes with it. Accusing, condemnative, digging around trying to find sins or concoct or find lies or find any aberration or sin within those whom God has duly appointed, such as Peter, such as Jude, such as Paul, who named names of those who had given him severe trouble. Uh, he wasn't bashful about it at one point. And delivered just, just Lot, vexed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So he saw what was going on around him. It bothered him. And yet, when it came time to depart from it, he still had difficulty. And his wife did and looked back on it. And you know what happened to her. <clears throat> so now, verse 9. The Eternal knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. So God is the judge. 
God is able to save those who will be righteous and will do what is right and follow his way of thinking for the kingdom of God, and he is also willing or able to deliver those who will follow a wrong way of thinking to their punishment. But chiefly, all right, he draws it down to what the biggest problem was. Chiefly, you know, the chief is the leader. The chief is the head. The chief is the one that everyone would look to. So we're talking about the chief, the primary, the main thing here that Peter is driving about or driving at. So he may talk about covetousness. He may talk about merchandise, and you could interpret that in terms of money or whatever. And not every one of these individuals is going to have everything about them that is mentioned here. They may only have one or two of these things, but one or two is too many. So he says, the main thing I'm getting at, okay, chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. So it is an unclean thing. It is a wrong thing written within the church of God over the last, especially 25 years, some before that, <clears throat> and I've read them from time to time over the years. But there are those who, for whatever reason, despise government structure within the church of God. He's not talking about uh, mankind's governments here and nations and peoples of the world. He's talking to the church about the church. He even addresses that a departure church at the end time here. And the biggest or chief problem is a lust of uncleanness that has at its root the despising of government. Well, these things have come up. And isn't that the very root of what Satan's problem was? He began to despise God's leadership or rule over him. And that is, that is what he rebelled against from the very beginning. Now, he has not changed his attitude. And he will influence anyone he can to have the same attitude that he has had all these years since. So that is something we need to have as one of our number one chief concerns is those who will begin to despise and put down government. Now, they will start to use Scripture to try to convince you that there should be no government within the church, that we don't need ministers, we don't need teachers. I wrote an article, oh, back in probably about 1997, and when I was still with Church of the Great God for the Forerunner, entitled, I Love Government. It is on our website. You can read it there. But to begin that, I used an example. I think I, as I recall, that's what I used in that one. Uh, I got up one morning, stumbled into the coffee pot, and my mind said, pick up that cup of coffee. And my hand said, no, I think I'd rather knock it over. I was at that point of waking up where my hand 
eye and brain coordination was not yet together as much as it gets. So my, my hand did not do what my brain said. It did something else. And you know what? That upset me. I had coffee everywhere, but in my mouth. It frustrated me that my hand would not do what my brain was clearly saying that it should do. Now, a little later that day, I got my government back in order, and my hands began to kind of do what my brain said. That's government on a very simple level. We need for everything to function the way the head says to function. Christ is the head of the church. These are the words he wrote. And throughout the Bible, the whole flow of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is that God set men to be in charge. To lead, to guide, to teach, to expound Scripture, whether it be Moses, whether it be Ezra, whether it be any leader you pick. Samuel, we've already mentioned. In the New Testament, he trained for years apostles whom he would set over the church. And they gave direction, they gave orders at times. They followed his instruction as to whom to ordain and whom not to ordain. Paul even said, can a man learn except he have teachers? But when people get away from the flow of the Bible and begin to nitpick over words and try to get around the overall flow of Scripture, they get in trouble and they appeal to our covetousness and our vanity. In what way? In America, we're told from the time we're little bitty children that we are to have the attitude, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm a free citizen and I can do as I please in this country. So when we come to approach God's Word, we already have that mindset and that emotional value but no one's going to be over me. Now, let me give you an example. One of the scriptures that people who come to that mind tend to use is Hebrews 13, verse 17, I think it is. Where it does say, it is verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. Now, this one they do not like. And it is one of the ones that comes up in paper after paper. Because they'll pick out that word rule, and they'll look it up in the Greek, and it won't say rule. It will say lead, perhaps oversight if you get out Roger's thesaurus and start finding synonyms. Uh, even my, the margin of my King James says guide. Obey them that have the guide over you, or that lead you, is the first and primary in Vines and in Thayer's, I think it is, Greek expositions. So they say that doesn't mean rule. That means lead or guide, direct, whatever the word they want to substitute. Okay? 
Well and good. I agree with that. I have no problem with that. Rule is not the best word that could have been used there. Lead, guide, is a better translation of the Greek. All right, let's look at the context here just a little bit and see if they have anything to stand on using this verse. Verse 16, But to do good and to communicate forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. That means uh, communicating good things, not evil things. Then the first word of verse 17 is obey. What? Obey? I've never seen them really pick that word out of here. Now, they pick out the word rule and say it doesn't mean that. I've never seen them look up the word obey in the Greek and say it doesn't mean that. So whatever word you want to use where it says rule doesn't matter. Whether it's a leader, whether it's a guide, whether it's an overseer, Whatever word you want to put in there, it says that you are to obey them. Now, there's a horse of a different color. You can soften that word rule all you want to, but it doesn't change what Paul is saying. Obedience is there. Now, let's follow that up. He says it before and after. So, whatever word you want to use for rule, go for it. And submit yourselves. So we have obey and submit on both sides of however you want to interpret rule. I have never <clears throat> read one of those papers over the last 25, 30 years that made that point. It's not it, they don't use it. It would ruin their whole philosophy. For they watch for your souls. They are there for your eternal good. God has appointed them. God has ordained them. God has put them there for our good. As they that must give account, the ones that God appoints, that we are to obey and to submit to, are there that must give account for our spiritual understanding, obedience, and to God. They are involved then in the process of salvation that we so desperately need. And God says so right here. That they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, why did a lot of these people come to have the attitude they have today? That we should not have government in the church. Because at one time, virtually all of them, if not all of them, at one time believed that God's government was being, being enacted through the church and through Herbert Armstrong. They believed that. And they followed it. Now, what did they see? They saw what you and I saw. They saw that power sometimes being abused and misused. So instead of saying, 
There is duly constituted authority, which God clearly put in his church. Read Ephesians 5. Read 1 Corinthians 12. It's in there that Christ appointed and ordained apostles, evangelists, prophets, teachers, pastors, and so on. God put those in the church. And you can use the word hierarchy if you want, because it's there. And Paul told Timothy who to ordain and who not to ordain, who to pay well and who not to pay well. So there was organization and government within the church of God in the early New Testament. That is so very, very clear, but people try to get rid of it. You see, they went from one ditch to the other. There's the problem. Government was in the church. Government got abused by some in some places. So let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to throw government out, period. After all, I have a mind. After all, I can teach just as good as somebody else can. Uh-oh. Do you see covetousness there? I am just as good as you are. My mind is just as good as yours is. I can read the scripture the same way you can. Isn't that the attitude that started Satan down the road to oblivion? I'm just as smart as God. I can do things the way God is. I have power. I can think. I don't need God. Exact same attitude. And that is covetousness of autonomy, of personal sovereignty, of position, the position of God. And now they say it's not about that, but it's about those people who are put in positions of teaching. But it's the exact same attitude. Why did Paul tell us not to be many teachers? Because they get double judgment. Why did Paul say there are certain qualifications when he was talking to Timothy and to Titus for the ministry? Because it was not something to be taken on lightly. It was not for just anyone to do. They weren't to ordain nor allow just anyone to do it. But there had to be certain qualifications met. Now, no one human individual has ever completely met all those things. But they had better, in general, be doing so. If perfection were required, no one would ever be ordained as an elder or a minister. If perfection were required, none of us would ever be part of the kingdom of God. None of us would have been baptized yet, and we had to be perfect before baptism. You kind of follow the reasoning here? So no one is perfect, and people do make mistakes. But sometimes people allow themselves to get into attitudes that are ungodly attitudes and are indeed satanic attitudes that deny Christ. Because Christ is the one who put government and office within the church. And if anyone denies that, they are denying Christ. Yes, they'll still use his name. But they're denying his words. They're denying what he did in the church. 
Did he call all 150,000 of us individually and bring us to a knowledge of the Sabbath and the holy days, the truth about the Trinity, the truth about a thousand things, Christmas, Easter, you know, all the things we believe and understand. Did he bring us all individually who had minds, who could read this word? Some of us may have even read it prior to baptism or prior to understanding the truth from whence it came. No, God did not call all of us and have us stick our nose in the Bibles and come up with the truth. He called one man and showed him the truths. Started through his wife with the Sabbath. And then he began to proclaim it. And it became a worldwide thing. And at some point, most of us responded to that. Not saying that he can't call a few at the 11th hour that didn't hear that or didn't know that. That is clearly possible in Scripture. But by and large, overall, he worked through that man. And yet there were people who came to despise him for either mistakes or alleged mistakes or sins or alleged sins and departed from the truth or departed from the church. But one of the truths of the church was government. Of course, some of these people in these papers, and I've seen it referred to many times, will go back to an article Herbert Armstrong wrote in 1939 where he still didn't yet understand how God puts government in the church. He had seen himself the misuse of power in both the federal government and county governments and within the church because he became part of Sardis, or what he called Sardis, Seventh-day Church of God, and he saw misuse and abuse of power there. So he, too, wrongly concluded that there should not be government within the church from a hierarchical standpoint and wrote an article so saying. But he later repented of that because as he preached the truth of God and didn't have a local ministry to keep it going the right way, he would find as soon as he folded up the tent and left, people would go right back to what they'd always believed. So in 1948, he, or 47, he began what he had concluded was the correct venue, and that was to establish a training center for ministers so they could be trained and could go out and teach the truths of this word and support local congregations. So he changed his whole viewpoint that he had in 1939. But people use this, I, this thought, or this scripture, and take it clear out of context, that we have to go back to the faith once delivered. Whatever Herbert Armstrong first learned, we have to follow. We'd still be keeping Pentecost on the wrong day, were that true. We would still be doing a lot of things differently than we are today if that were true. Give the man a chance to grow. Give him a chance to learn. What do you do with the scripture that says that we are to um, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord? Do you think he understood everything from the very beginning correctly? where then would be room for growth in grace and knowledge. Did he give 
all the original apostles, all the knowledge they needed so that nothing would ever need to be changed again. In other words, the faith once delivered from Christ to his apostles was the final word on any and everything, and they would never need to ever make a decision or learn something different or update their knowledge. No. He taught Paul for three and a half years personally in the desert, and Paul still had to update his knowledge. He still had to make a decision based on that knowledge later on that would change a very basic doctrine. Peter did not believe that you could allow Gentiles within the church. According to the three and a half years he spent in Christ's teaching, when it was all said and done, and Christ had returned to his Father in heaven, Peter wasn't about to admit Gentiles into the church. They had a conference at Jerusalem. Discussed the whole matter. Circumcision was another big issue on the table. Boy, you'd think that somebody had asked that question during that three and a half years the apostles were the Christ. Do we need to circumcise? Faith once delivered didn't change it. But it got changed. And Paul said circumcision is nothing of the flesh, but of the heart it is everything. So he raised it to a spiritual understanding. And Gentiles were allowed in the church, thankfully. So things changed. Paul in 1 Corinthians changed one of the basic tenets of the marriage doctrine. And he says, what I'm speaking is not from the Lord. Oh, this isn't what I originally heard from Christ. But I'm going to change it. And he did. And you know what? God accepted it and put it in the Bible for us to live by today. I got a request from somebody just recently. Well, what do you think about the marriage doctrine? Because these people who wrote me, I had never heard of them before, uh, had said that we are to go back to the faith once delivered. Everything Herbert Armstrong originally believed about everything, we have to go back to. Wrong. Now, Paul made his decision in 1 Corinthians 7 based upon God his knowledge of God and how God thinks. And he did act and give a new decision. It did change things. And he said so himself about marriage. And God accepted his decision in the matter just as he accepted the decisions they made in Jerusalem about Gentiles and circumcision and so on and so forth. So using that, ar that argument that we have to go back to what Herbert Armstrong originally believed about anything is so wrong on so many levels. We have to grow in the knowledge of our Lord through this book. So don't let anybody confuse you about such things. Let's get back to Peter. Those that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, it is an unclean thing 
to think that God does not have proper government, duly constituted, God-appointed government within the body of Christ. They despise governments. Presumptuous are they. So, presuming to despise government, God says, is presumptuousness. Now, how does God look upon presumption? Same thing as witchcraft, he says. Presumptuousness is as witchcraft. So anyone who presumes this position that we're talking about, that, that Peter brought up, are indulging in something that is on the same level as witchcraft. Okay? Despising government God put within the church is on the same level with witchcraft. It isn't witchcraft in that sense, but it's on the same level in God's mind. And indeed, it's satanic, and what is witchcraft about? Self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities or dignitaries or people put in offices. They're not afraid to do that. In fact, they do it. Now, should we be afraid to do that? A question. Should we be afraid to do that? I think that is the exact implication Peter is making. He is giving a sound or resounding put-down to that type of attitude. Therefore, the opposite should be true. If we're not to put down or speak evil of those put in a position of authority, then we should be very afraid to do so. But in America today, again, our culture is that we can dis dismiss or disrespect anyone we want to. Paul addresses that from a uh, government of the nation level in Romans 13. And says, be very careful, because even God has put those people there. And Daniel 4 tells us that God puts over the governments the basest of men. So there's no question that those men and the governments around the world today are very base, very wrong, very ungodly. That's the kind God says he appoints and allows to be there and make sure get there. Okay? But this is speaking of within the church. He's telling us we'd be very, very careful. Now, if you run into somebody who is very willing to spout their feelings, their beliefs about someone who is in a position of authority in the church, you should have a red flag go up the highest pole you've got with these scriptures in mind. Because Peter says that's an absolute no-no. But God puts it in the same category as witchcraft. So if someone brings you those attitudes, that is the level that God places what they have to say on. This is scary business. He says, Whereas angels, verse 11, which are greater in power and might, the eight, we are made for a little while less than the angels, as Peter tells us in Hebrews. So the angels are above us. They have far more power. They have far more might. 
They have far more intelligence, if you will, than we do. And God says that the angels bring not railing accusation against them before the eternal. The angels are afraid. The angels are righteous, the holy angels. But even the righteous holy angels are afraid to bring railing accusation against those whom God has put in authority or in charge or to lead or whatever you say. Do the angels see problems in human leaders within the church? Yes, they do. They have the ability to know far more than you and I do. We fantasize or suspect or dream up or put two and two together and get seven or whatever we do to come up with the things that we come up with. But the angels know. They know. They see. And they will not bring accusation. But these, as natural brute beasts, just going according to normal human nature, but he puts it in the beast category because what does a beast do? Speaking of a ravenous beast or a carnivorous beast, they simply rip and tear and kill. So he puts someone who has no fear of speaking evil of those in authority in the same category as lions and tigers and polar bears who will rip and tear flesh with no compunction, with no conscience, with no caring, except doing as they want to do. Do we understand what Peter is trying to say here about the end-time church? Made to be taken and destroyed. If that attitude continues, they will be destroyed. They speak evil of the things that they understand not. They don't know. I know a man who, or knew a man, he's dead now, who wrote a book about Herbert Armstrong and accused a whole book about things that he did not know to be true. He had heard rumor. He had heard gossip. He added to it his own suspicions. He added to it his own fantasy and came up with his conclusions. He departed from the church. Later he departed from God entirely. And his judgment is up to God. But he put himself in this category and it scares me for him because on some levels I like the guy. I knew him. They speak evil of things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Are they in some respects perhaps good, moral, upstanding citizens with good qualities? More than likely. Otherwise, we don't listen to anything they say. This is very subtle. This is very scary. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are in blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings, while they feast with you. So these are people within the church 
who will come to the feasts of God, but have the attitude that Peter is talking about here. We should learn to recognize this, because this is a very grave danger. It has been within our experience in the church, and it is still happening within the church. And we had better be very, very attuned to what Peter has to say here, because it can likely affect any of us anywhere in the church at any time. And believe me, wherever it comes from, they will seem to be right. Their story will sound plausible. Their fabrications, lies, and half-truths will have a ring of truth about them. And we can be pulled under. But if they are saying negative, evil things about those whom God has placed in authority, then they are automatically in this category, no matter how nice they might appear. That's the scary part. It's so easy to be deceived. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. Now, this isn't necessarily speaking of physical adultery. It could include it, certainly. But we're talking about spiritual values here. Spiritual adultery. You see, when it comes down to this thing of government, God's government in heaven is intact. And he has placed men in charge on this earth to teach, to preach, to guide, to lead, and we are to submit to and obey them so long as they do it according to this word. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. He was a duly constituted authority. But there were those who spoke evil of Paul and dreamed up all kinds of sins and alleged allegations against him and proclaimed them within the church. And he said they did him great evil. Happened to Herbert Armstrong. Still happening today, wherever within the church of God. So what kind of adultery is he talking about? (coughs) Specifically, he's talking about those who would commit adultery from God and Christ himself and go with another lover, in this case Satan the devil, who is the one who is the accuser of the brethren and the ministry, and who speaks evil of the offices that God has placed, and try to discredit them both personally and professionally, and even saying that they should not exist, because we all have brains. Yes, we do all have brains. We can all read Scripture, and we should learn from it. But you would not know most of the things you know today did you not have or had not had teachers. That's just the way it is. That is the mode that God himself uses, okay? So it is adultery from God to foreign lovers, Satan, his demons, their beliefs. And that that cannot cease from sin. You see, once someone gets in that attitude... They just can't seem to get over it. They just can't get over it. Even as Esau became bitter and he could not get over it, even though he tried. You go so far into your emotions 
that it affects your entire being, and then you can't do anything but think the way you think and say the things you say. And they can't seem to get past it. That's what Peter's saying. They can't cease from the spiritual adultery that they are committing against God and against His church. Beguiling unstable souls. So it makes them unstable and it causes them to use guile. Beguiling souls. They use guile to try to cause others to think the way they think. What do you, did you hear this? Did you hear that? Do you think this? Very subtly, they'll begin to try to draw you in to their bitterness, anger, hurt, and shame. You want to listen to that? It could take you out of the kingdom of God. It doesn't even matter if the things they are saying are true. Some of those things about Herbert Armstrong may have been true. I don't know for sure. I wasn't there. They may have been true. Does that change the fact that God used the man to call you and me? Moses may have indeed sinned against God by marrying the woman he married, as Miriam and Aaron accused him. He may have indeed done something that was contrary to Scripture. If he did, God forgave it and moved on. But Miriam and Aaron got leprosy and stuff like that for making the accusation. God didn't kick Moses out. Paul admitted before all that he was still a sinner. Things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, he did. Well, let's throw Paul out right now. He wasn't perfect. No. God accepted that Paul was still a human being with human weaknesses and difficulties, and he used him to write a good portion of the Bible. And Paul is going to be in the kingdom of God. But once people get bitter, they become unstable, and they beguile others. And heart have they exercised with covetous practice, cursed children. Anyone who has this chief attitude Paul is speaking of is under a curse of Scripture and God. The judgment may not have been rendered as yet, but it shall be, unless there is change. Now, God said he would even remit the punishment on Sodom and Gomorrah. If you can find 50 people there, well, how about 10? You know, on and on. Now the judgment stood because they weren't there. So the curse will come. And the curse causeless does not come. There's a reason that God will punish those who have this attitude. Verse 15, which have forsaken the right way. The right way is that God put apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, prophets, and elders in the church to lead, guide, direct, teach, administer, make payrolls, 
make all kinds of administrative decisions. That's so very clear through Scripture, but they ignore all that. And the whole flow of the Bible to try to pick on one or two Greek words here and there and skew something entirely out of context and come up with a totally wrong idea. I've read many of those papers, and all of them jerk God's Word out of context and misuse and abuse that which is so clear in the Bible. Why do they spend so much time trying to prove they're right? Because the whole flow of the Bible proves they're wrong and they have to fight it to try to prove they're right. And they have to point out any flaws they find, anyone who is in a constituted position put by God within the church. So they've forsaken the right way, the right understanding of God's government, how he works through men. Now, it is wrong that for us to say that this is the government of God. No, it is the government of men trying to administer things as God would. There is no line of authority, and I understand this thoroughly, from God the Father, through Christ, through an apostle, through an evangelist, through a pastor, through an elder, through a deacon that tells you everything you're supposed to do, and you don't have access to God because you've got to go through that chain of authority. <coughs> that is not the way that it is in Scripture. Every one of us, when the veil of the temple was rent in twain, have access to the Father through His Son, Christ. And He told us to pray to the Father. Not even to the Son. He instructed us, pray to the Father through the Son. So the church does not stand between you and God. Let's understand that. The church is in the position of a mother to teach the children and point them to the Father who is the head of the house. That's the way God set up the human family. The Father's in charge. The mother is there, and she's to direct the children in the way that they should go. But the children always have access to their father, don't they? Do they have to say, Mom, can I hug Dad? Mom, can I talk to Dad? No. They always have direct access to their father. But the mother is aside in the line of authority to teach them to go to their father, to teach them the right way to live. That's the position of Jerusalem, the mother of us all, as Peter and as Paul put it in Galatians, to be in the position of the mother. When we're the bride of Christ, won't we be in the position of the mother. We won't take Christ's place. Everybody will have access to the Father and the Son. But the mother will be there to teach, train, and guide the children in the millennium. That's the way it should work. So if anybody tries to tell you that we have that kind of hierarchical government, they're wrong. I don't see it that way at all. You don't have to go through the deacon and the elder to get to the Father. You just pray in Christ's name. And you're there. But I am here to teach you how to serve the Father and how to improve your relationship with Him. And God appointed me to this job, and I was ordained to do it by Herbert Armstrong himself. 
and given clear instructions from Christ himself on what I am to be doing. That's the way that it is. But they've forsaken this right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now they'll say, well, we're not Balaam and we're not after money. No, it is the example here of someone who for whatever reason departs from the right way. Now in Balaam, it was a payoff or money in particular. Sometimes the payoff can be different. Sometimes the payoff is the honor that they might receive from others or the influence they might receive from others or those who will back them in their bad attitude. That's their payoff. The payoff can be different, come from in different forms. But was rebuked uh, for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. So... God straightened Balaam out. They used a jackass to do it. Well, maybe I'm the dumbass in this case that God has sent here today to read you Peter and to rebuke what these people are saying. These are wells without water. Now, they will accuse others of not having the fruit of God's Spirit, but is accusation, is denial, is negativity, is accusation false or true, a fruit of the Spirit of God? I don't see those things listed, do you? Wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. God says that those who will despise and talk evil of things that God has, has constituted himself are going to go into the mist of darkness forever. In other words, eternal death. Again, what is the main topic here that Peter is discussing? government and the church, duly constituted by God. That is one of the primary issues with God. It is the primary issue with Satan, the devil himself, who decided that God should not be in charge and rebelled against God himself. So anyone who despises what Paul said in Ephesians, what Christ himself said in appointing the apostles, and the government that God instituted on the earth within the church is in the same category as Satan the devil. And we need to treat them the same way, as if they were satanic, as if they practiced witchcraft. How plainly did Peter need to put this? Be very, very careful, brethren. I did not intend to spend this much time on this. I wanted to get on through it and maybe even cover Jude. But this is a huge issue within the church of God. And it is one of the most divisive issues that the church has had in these last 25 years. Because there always will be those 
who feel that they have inside knowledge or better understanding and they will put down those who were put there for a purpose and they will split and splinter and it does even talk about them who separate themselves I'm not sure it's here that, I think that's in Jude but they separate themselves from the others and on and on it goes well that's all the time I have for today so we'll go ahead and conclude with this but uh, Peter is delivering a very very powerful message here to the end time church and we had better be very very careful in what we say and what we think and how we react how we influence people and how we allow people to influence us. Because he could take us out of the kingdom of God and in the midst of darkness forever.